We will be in Psalm 119, only eight verses of it. So if you open your Bibles to Psalm 119. And we'll be starting in verse 97. So eight verses, Psalm 119, verse 97. And I'll read for you. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Would you pray with me? God, we now turn to your word and its exposition. We've heard it read. We pray that you would bless its reading already, that you would bless its preaching and its hearing. We're counting on you. We would be unable to understand and apply your word without your spirit working here today. Would you do that for us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm a little emotional. I have a letter here. I'm going to do this up front because I, it's hard to get through it. <laughs> I'm sure I'll settle down in a minute, but this is a special letter to me. It's one of those things you might think about if you considered this scenario. Your house is on fire, (laughs) and uh, you're thinking about what you go in, aside from your wife and kids, what do you go in and save? Are there pictures? Are there some expensive item? I think I would go in for this. It's a special letter. I love this letter. It's it's a letter from my dad. My dad wrote this letter uh, before he died. And... uh, he was planning to give it to us. He see, he found out he had Parkinson's and, and uh, really didn't know how much time he had. But as it turned out, being the stubborn and, and uh, resilient man that he was, he had many years of dealing with Parkinson's before he passed. But he had written this letter with that in mind, and it happened to be that I and my two brothers 
uh, got called to go to Iraq. And so he thought the tables have turned, uh, not with his own life and death in mind, but ours. He decided to give this to us at that time. I've never shared what this letter says with anybody, and I'm not going to share it with you today. This is for me. Uh, But I will tell you a little bit about what it has to say. See, this letter, it, uh, it had something to say about who I am. Uh, my dad shared some insight that uh, helped me see myself. It had something to say about who my dad was. Things I maybe even didn't know. And it gave me some instruction. How do I carry on? Who I am and who he is. And how to carry on. It's the kind of thing I meditate on. A psalmist this morning. Isn't that what he's saying? You read that in verse 97. Do you see it there? Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. He loves God's Word. We would say he loves the Bible. We have a canonized, uh, uh, complete uh, Scripture, God's Word. And, and, uh, and so that's how we would read this psalm. We love the Bible. Do you love the Bible? That's the question, and that's the title of this sermon and the message today is Loving God's Word. Well, Psalm 119, just a quick overview, some interesting facts, really fascinating facts about Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It does have almost 180 verses. If we'd spend a couple minutes on each, it would take six hours to get through it. And essentially, every verse in this chapter, the longest chapter in the Bible, mentions the Bible. It says uh, this, even in our uh, passage, 97 through 104, look at each verse, and you'll see law mentioned in 97, 98, commandment, 99, testimonies, 100, precepts, 101, your word, 102, your rules, 103, your words, plural, and 104, again, your precepts, law, instruction, commands, decrees, statutes, rules, judgments, testimonies, promises, precepts, all describing the very words of God. Psalm 119 is not only the longest, but it's uh, perhaps the most interestingly structured, the most unique that way. Every eight verses is a new take, a new nuanced uh, approach to the Bible. Of these 176 verses divided into eight verses each, that would give you 22 total sections, and it corresponds to the Hebrew alphabet. It's an acrostic. Look back at verse 1 in our chapter. If you turn, you might have to turn back. Do you see the heading? You probably have a heading in your Bible, and it says Aleph. That's the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and in verse 9, Beth. 
you almost hear it, don't you? Aleph Beth, alphabet. Well, it's very interesting that way. And but our section, our eight verses, is is special. Even in this special chapter, loving God's word, the title of our sermon. Our psalmist wants us to see what it means to love God's Word. These eight verses are particularly about loving the Bible. It says, Oh, how I love your law. Seems we might be looking right at the heart of the Bible this morning. So the title is Loving God's Word, and um, I'll want you to see what the psalmist sees. Maybe we could think of looking through four windows to do that. So the psalmist gives us four windows to look through and see what he sees and how he loves God's Word and how we ought to as well. So we'll see four windows. Look at those uh, hopefully rather quickly. And then we'll pause after having looked through these four windows and reflect on what we've seen and maybe what we've seen in the world. I'll give you three reflections. Four windows, three reflections, Two applications. These are going to be nuts and bolt applications, not abstractions. These are going to be clear, down-to-earth, two applications. And one bottom line. I hope we can end this morning just seeing one uh, urgent, critical bottom line that we can't ignore. Four, three, two, one. That's the structure. It's like a countdown. And the psalm almost gets more and more personal that way. Hope you feel the urgency of that. So four windows. The first window, interestingly here in verse 9, do you see that the title is meme? That's the Hebrew letter? I know, that's interesting to me. We're looking at a meme this morning. So these four windows, verse 97, the first window that we look at, the psalmist says, look at your enemies. Look at your enemies. See what I see. The first, I'm sorry, this is uh, verse 98. Having read verse 97, let's go on to 98. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Psalmist has enemies, doesn't he? And I suppose if you thought about your life, you could think of a few enemies. And we don't seek out enemies. In fact, we're called to love our enemies, but nonetheless, probably have enemies in our lives. Maybe you couldn't think of anyone. Do you know you have unseen enemies as a Christian? Unseen enemies, forces of darkness that are against you. A psalmist might feel surrounded by his enemies, isolated. Enemies tend to strike when you're most vulnerable, maybe when you're alone. You've got no one by your side, no one backing you up, you could say. Sometimes it's just you, isn't it? Just you alone. The psalmist kind of says, no, actually, I'm never alone. What does he say? Your commandment is ever with me. I think the psalmist would say, uh, I'm not talking about a how-to manual or, or directions. Uh, I'm talking about a, a marching order, your command, commandment. 
We're talking about enemies, and I think he has in mind a military commander. This is the Lord Sabaoth, El Shaddai, the God Almighty, commander of all the armies of heaven. We're enlisted in that force. The psalmist is not facing enemies, he would say, trying to strategize his own way out. He has his commandment. And it makes him wiser than his enemies because his commandment comes from this great strategist, this military command, commander, and he's been given this strategy. So he's never outsmarted, you might say, never alone. Commandment is always with him, and he's never outsmarted. You might also say he's never outgunned. So if the Bible is talking here about strategy, it reveals God's strategy, I think what we need to see as we're learning to love the Word of God is that it doesn't just reveal strategy, it is God's strategy. Think of Ephesians 6. You may be familiar with the armor of God that Paul describes in Ephesians 6. What it you remember, the belt of what? Truth. The belt of truth. This is a proposition. That's God's strategy. The breastplate of righteousness, believing God at his word and in accordance with his degrees, to de- decrees. It's righteousness. Your feet have shoes prepared by the gospel. It's good news, a message to be proclaimed. The shield of faith. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by what? The Word. The Word of God. Helmet of salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. These are defensive things. What about the offensive thing? The thing that you use as a weapon, as it were, not to hurt, but to heal. The sword of the Spirit, God's Word. God's Word. This is God's strategy. The Bible doesn't just reveal His strategy. It is His strategy. What did Jesus do? What was His strategy? Matthew 4, you might remember the narrative account of His temptation when He faced the great enemy, the devil himself. How did He respond to the devil? Well, he recites, he catalogs God's commands. Three times he tells the devil, it is written. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And you shall worship the Lord your God alone. It is written. The psalmist has come to love God's word, the wisdom and the power of God's command. It's the first window. It's the first window. Second window. The next verse. Verse 99. So we want to see what the psalmist sees. And he says, I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. The psalmist turns now. He considers another relationship. And you can see it's a little more personal. It's not the enemies out there. It's our teachers. Teachers are probably some of the most esteemed people in your lives. 
maybe the people you most admire or made the biggest impact on your life? Do you have a favorite teacher? I thought about that. I have a favorite teacher. You know, I found out through my kids having that teacher that I was her favorite student as well. <laughs> I didn't know that until 20 years later. Favorite teacher. Well, I can't believe I'm still in school at my age. I'm actually, I keep, seem to keep coming back to school. But I was just reflecting on what a teacher must know to do their job. It's way beyond just knowing to function. It's uh, another level. Some people say you don't really know anything until you're able to teach it. Teachers know a lot, but one thing I know is that knowledge alone does not equal understanding. The psalmist here, verse 99 says, I have more understanding than all my teachers. I've uh, been a follower of apologetic debates for many years. This seems engaging to me to see two people uh, disagree, usually amicably and brilliantly. Apologetics, Christian apologetics in particular. And I've been amazed at uh, the arguments and how helpful they are. If you haven't looked into this, uh, it's a great resource as a Christian to see that the Christian faith is a logically sound proposition. Makes sense. But something that occurred to me at some point, uh, this was actually quite helpful for me to, in understanding, understanding, it was to realize that these are equally brilliant people, usually, just as smart as they come on both sides of the stage, and they disagree. Wouldn't it seem that the highest IQs, the people with the most, un, uh, most knowledge, would agree if it was all just about knowledge? Well, literally cannot logically be so because otherwise they would all agree. The smartest people don't always arrive at the truth. What does this verse say? Your testimonies are my meditation. It's almost as if the psalmist is putting his hand on the Bible and saying, it's the truth, it's the whole truth, it's nothing but the truth. It's God's testimony. He's describing how God's Word has become to him a treasured possession. He's giving these windows for us to look through and see what he sees. And he says, uh, first window, the Bible's commands, I'm wiser than all my enemies. And here, uh, the Bible is God's testimony. I have more understanding than my teachers. Well, it gets even more personal for me. I love this next window, and it, it talks about the aged. The aged. Third window, verse 100. I understand more than the aged, or yours might say the elders, for I keep your precepts. Your precepts. I don't know what you have perceived in this day and age, I'm usually scratching my head at how the uh, opinions of the youth are kind of held up above all else. I think it's because it sells commercials and magazines and TV shows. Um, but I, I, I still walk in a room, and if there are people who are my elders there, I kind of stand up a little straighter and listen a little more closely. These are the people who know how to do the things that I don't know how to do. These are the people who have the experience. 
They've weighed their options in life. They've made their choices. They've had their successes and they've had their failures. They've learned by experience. They've probably forgotten more than I know and still more, still know more than I know. That's how I feel. I think the psalmist feels that way too because he goes from enemies to teachers. It's as if he's ramping this up, making it more personal, and now he talks about his elders. He might say the teachers, they've studied subjects, but your elders have lived in the classroom of life. But he says there's something more than knowledge, understanding, that comes through experience. He says there are precepts, God's precepts. This is an understanding that comes from success and failure. This is what uh, you might call a priori understanding. Not concepts, but precepts. It comes first. This isn't propositional. It's axiomatic. The Bible is the kind of thing you start with. It's a presupposition. The philosopher might call it properly basic knowledge. This, what the psalmist is talking about here, is a deductive kind of knowing. It's starting with a fundamental truth and reasoning from there. It's not inductive. It's not taking all your observations and hypothesizing a conclusion. The Bible gives understanding. I love my letter. I love my dad. But the Bible gives understanding that even my dad just didn't have enough time to come to know through experience. Oh, how I love your law. Your precepts, they're properly basic. Your testimonies, they're the whole truth. Nothing but the truth. And your commands, they're a winning strategy. Well, the fourth window, the last window we're looking through is uh, the most personal. So we've said uh, your enemies and your teachers and your elders, and now we're at your self. Verses 101 and 102. I hope you're beginning to take this more and more personally, the Bible. This is the final window, and uh, it's directed at yourself. Verses 101 and 102. I hold you, I hold back my feet, hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules because you have taught me. Preachers uh, often talk about wanting to accomplish three things in their communication. They want to communicate to your mind. You don't want to walk away from a passage not knowing what it means. But they want to engage your heart. They want you to be uh, emotionally invested in what it means. But even that is not enough. A good preacher, a good counselor, a good friend wants to engage your will as well. That's what's going on here. The psalmist is a good preacher. He wants to engage your will. It's not enough to know what it says or feel what it says. 
but you have to do what it says. He's talking about choice in verses 101 and 102. What will you choose? You know, you can't walk out of here this morning and not choose after hearing God's Word. It's not an option. Do you know even no choice is a choice? Just to be remaining indifferent to what it says is a choice. You have to choose. What choice will you make? What does the psalmist choose? He says in verse 101, I hold back my feet. His feet want to go in some direction, don't they? And he restrains them. It brought to my mind 2 John 1 9. This might be the second shortest book in the Bible, 2 John. I think 3 John is the shortest. 2 John 1 9. Everyone, we're talking about restraining your feet. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Verse 102. It's a little different. Still about choice. The psalmist says, I do not turn aside. He's going in a direction now. Going in a direction he should go. But he feels a pull to change direction. I don't know how many mornings I wake up. And... uh, Usually, no, I need to open my Bible. It's a great way to start the day. And the wheels start spinning. I think, shouldn't I just get to work with other things? I want to go in a different direction. It made me think of Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right at times to a man, and its end is the way to death. So maybe this is strange, but I actually wrote this in my outline uh, stop preaching here. So, um, I don't know. I'm not that good of a preacher, and I think good preachers can just speak from the heart from beginning to end. I just want to make sure that I'm speaking from the heart. The Bible is not a duty. It's a delight. Do you see that in verses 103 and 104? Actually, verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Is that my experience with the Bible, that its sweetness is what I think about? Or is it just a big, I ought to do this in my life? If that's not, if you're not experiencing the sweetness of the Bible... Uh, Don't feel shamed into trying to change your life, but don't be satisfied until it is sweet to you. It will become that. Verse 104, look at this. We're thinking about loving God's Word, and here we're talking about hate. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Our tastes change and our emotions change, you could say our appetites change and our affections change through the power of God's Word when we come to love it. So those are the four windows. And uh, 
I just want to share some reflections. So four windows, if you remember, three reflections, two applications, one bottom line. Here's my three reflections on this, and uh, again, just from the heart. I've heard this. Thinking about this passage and thinking about my experience interacting with people, you know some people have argued very with, with a lot of conviction that uh, essentially they tell me you can have too much Bible. You can have kind of too much of it. You can kind of become an egghead. And uh, I'm sure there are eggheads walking around, I suppose, but you can have too much Bible. What do you think? Seriously, though, is, is your life, is my life, showing that I think that's nonsense? Uh, how often am I turning to the Bible? The psalmist says, I meditated on it all the day, all day long. Some say the problem isn't that you don't know enough. It's just you're not doing what you already know. You already know plenty. Just do it. Some say, uh, I've heard this as well, it's, uh, you emphasize the Bible too much, it's almost like you're replacing the Trinity with this wrong kind of Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Holy Bible. This is just not seeing maybe the forest for the trees. I don't know. Uh, what does the Bible say? This is the bottom line here. What does the Bible say about Bible intake, about your intake of the Scripture? The psalmist meditates on it all day long. He has either, it's two options here, either he's had it open all day long, or he's internalized it so effectively that he has it here all day long. Either way, he has done some serious study. First reflection. You just can't minimize God's Word. Second reflection. Memorizing is not the only way to hide God's Word in your heart. It's a great way. It's not the only way. Have you read large sections of the Bible? Have you read it as a book? It has an impact that way that becomes uh, internalized. Uh, have you chosen a little bit smaller sections, maybe a, a shorter book or a chapter or two or three? What do you think would happen? What do you think would happen if for the next month you read Galatians every day? It's something I learned maybe learning music is uh, you don't practice the piece of music from beginning to end. You pick a verse. You practice that. What would happen if you took a relatively smaller section of the Bible, but not a memory verse approach, but just read it every day for a month. Do you think you would remember? Do you think you would internalize what's there? Pray through Scripture. There's more than one way. There's more than just memorization to internalize, to hide God's Word in your heart. I remember, uh, again, reflection time. I remember as a young man being awkward and nervous in prayer meetings, and in fact, at the church I went to, imagine this, picture this, they passed a microphone around, like this microphone, you know, and as a young man, you have to speak into this microphone and it blares through the speakers. It was a little daunting. I had 
occurred to me one day that I would just open my Bible and paraphrase what it says from a psalm, I felt like I was cheating, right? I found out later uh, people like Don Whitney promote that kind of thing. Well, what is the psalms? It's, it's prayer language. Pray the Bible. You might memorize after you've done some of these things, and maybe that's the spark that really lights up the Bible for you. Well, third reflection. Loving God's Word. That's what we're talking about. Loving God's Word is better caught than taught. We could talk about it all day long, couldn't we? Eventually, you've got to open it and dig into it. You have to commit to opening your Bible. You know the Bible is self-authenticating. It will argue for itself. It's like a flashlight. You don't have to explain a flashlight. You just turn the flashlight on. And it does the work, doesn't it? The Bible is, we talked about the lion and the lamb. The Bible, it has been said, is like a lion. It's uh, just open the cage door. It'll defend itself. It'll do the work. You have to engage with it. That's the bottom line. Maybe there are better ways than others to engage with it. Have you heard this? Uh, Firewood will warm you twice. So better ways than others to engage with the Bible and internalize it. I tend to do this. This is my uh, tendency, and it's not good in its unbalanced character. I tend to study the Bible academically rather than read it devotionally. It's not best if that's all you do. Firewood warms you twice. I'm just getting the benefit of cutting the firewood. My wife is a devotional reader more times than not. She reads a little, writes a little, and asks a few questions every single day. It's like sitting around a fire pit or a fireplace and warming yourself. There are better ways than others, and maybe a balance is the way to go. Two applications. You know, there's a question that'll change your life. It'll change your life in your family. It'll change your life with your friends, even with your unsaved friends. It'll change the life of your church. If you ask this question, this is the nuts and bolts. This is the easy application. Ask one another this. What have you been reading lately? What have you been reading lately? Not the bestseller list. And not even a book about the Bible. But in the Bible, what have you been reading? What have you been digging into? It's not, uh, I'm not trying to be passive-aggressive and, you know, guilt somebody into change. um, Because it's not passive-aggressiveness when you're opening yourself up to scrutiny as well. If you ask that question, it can be asked of you. Ask one another, what have you been reading lately? That's application one. Think about how that will change your life. Application two, do this in community. Uh, Internalize the Bible in community. Do you have Bible studies that you can do together somehow? Some churches still have Sunday school. Other churches do it different ways. Um, Small groups are an essential to church life. It has been a trend, my opinion, to marginalize Bible study in small group time. It's not all bad, 
We have to just pray for one another. We have to know each other and enjoy one another's lives, bear one another's burdens. That takes time. You've got to talk through things. But uh, at some point, is there a way that you can get together around a teacher? And not a preacher, but a teacher who can teach what it says, and then you can discuss it as a community. Kind of putting this together. What would happen if you, uh, as a community... uh, volunteered. Well, I'm going to know Galatians. I'm going to know another person. I'm going to know Ephesians. Another person. I'm going to take Philippians. And then you got together. What if you had all read that book every day for the last month or two or three? Do you think it might turn into uh, walking concordance, living, breathing concordance of the Bible when you get together? Those are two applications. Ask that question do this in community, but here's the bottom line, really, at the end of the day. This isn't just about love and hate. That's pretty strong language. The psalmist begins with, I love your law. He ends with, I hate every false way. It's a strong emotions, but it's actually more urgent than that. It isn't just love and hate. It's life and death. Your life is at stake. When my dad wrote this letter, he had this in mind. Your, your, your life and your death are in view, and that is what is in view with the Bible. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews, and I'll read. You remember what I think my dad's letter does? It tells me who I am. Hebrews 4 and verse 12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What's verse 13 say? All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. The Bible will tell you who you are, and it's alive in doing that. This is life and death. If you need to express the gospel to somebody. They need to know who they are, don't they? If you want to grow, you need to know who you are. So who he was, I say, it also does that. Romans 10. You can turn there if you'd like. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, or some translations say, about Christ. So, who I am, who He is. This is life and death. You want Jesus, you need His Word. The third aspect of this bottom line, Galatians 3. You want to grow as a Christian. I've discovered who I am, and I've fallen on the mercy of who He is, Jesus Christ, my Savior, and I want to grow. Galatians 3 still has something to say to me. Galatians 3, verse 2. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works 
of the law or by hearing through faith. God is the one who speaks life into being. If you want to hear Him, speak in your life. If you want to hear it audibly, read the Bible out loud. Right? And His Word will never lose its power. It's an untapped resource in most lives, in most Christian communities. He's written it down. He's, it's, it's like this. He's written, I can carry this with me. He's written it down. Oh, how I love this book. Would you pray with me? God, we're closing, and uh, even as we close, we want to reflect, we want to apply, we want to know what the bottom line is when it comes to what you have had to say to us this morning. God, I just pray a very simple prayer. Would you remind us to ask one another, what have you been reading? Will you remind us to uh, internalize your word and to do it together in community. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.